0: good evening welcome to tonight's edition of resistance tv tonight we're discussing how the rich get richer and destroy society um despite a year of economic turmoil there's been 24 extra billionaires in the uk taking the total to i think it's around 171 now but at the same time disadvantaged people have been pushed further and further into poverty and official statistics suggest Anything between 12 and 14 million people living in poverty in the UK, the fifth biggest economy in the world. So, tonight we've got Rod Driver again, who was with us a couple of weeks ago, who will be speaking for about 10 or 20 minutes, and then we'll have a discussion and then open it to the floor for your comments and questions. So, over to you, Rod. The floor is yours.
1: Hi, Chris. Welcome. Thanks for having me on the show again. No worries, mate. How are you this evening? I'm very well. Thank you.
0: How That's are good you? To hear? Yeah, I'm very well actually. I'm I'm, I'm hot though. Uh, we've been out on a demonstration today against uh, JCB that sells their equipment to uh, Israel for the which is then used for the demolition of Palestinian homes. So they're kind of profiting from from war crimes. So we've we've had quite an interesting uh, day over at the JCB world headquarters. So uh, yeah, it was very hot though, and I'm sure. sort of I think a bit a bit somber. But I'm okay.
1: That's a a great example of the stuff we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, where companies are getting very, very wealthy, being involved in very unethical things. Exactly. This week, we're going to sort of extend that a bit. So this week, we're going to talk about how individuals uh, who are already rich uh, get much, much richer because the system is rigged to benefit them. And we're going to look at that for the first half of what I'm talking about. And then the second half of what I'm going to talk about is the, the downsides of actually having rich people around. Because if you look in the mainstream press, you'd never get the impression that there are downsides to there being rich people. But in fact, they're very important. So that'll be the second half of what I'm going to talk about. So in America, people have even started coining the phrase excessive wealth disorder. So we've, we've got the top 25 hedge fund managers each earning approximately 800 million US dollars a year. So this is a phenomenal amount uh, of wealth. So there's, there's a half a dozen major ways in which the system is rigged to enable very wealthy people to get much uh, wealthier. And what you realize is that it's very much about if you're born in the right family, you go to the right schools or universities, you have the right political connections, then you get opportunities laid out on a plate before you. And there's a lot of luck. There's a lot of cheating and being in the right place at the right time. And then there's a small amount of talent and hard work, which is the sort of icing on the cake. So many of these people just understand how the system is rigged which then creates what's called a free lunch where they get wealth which they have not earned. So the most obvious of these would probably be inheritances. And most people don't really question the notion of inheritance. They just sort of accept it as part of the system. And the media will really challenge the idea that something wrong with inheritances. But if we actually go back over time and look at how much of these fortunes which is being passed down from generation to generation, how that was accumulated, we realise there's a great deal of crime and unethical behavior in the past. And if you look at uh, land that was originally common land being taken from everybody and put into the hands of a handful of people who were barons or other friends of the king or the queen of that era and so on, you realize that there was nothing fair about wealth distribution then, And that situation has been passed down over over time. So the second main way that rich people get very, very rich is what's known as asset price inflation. Now, don't worry about the technical terms. It just means that if you already own something, whether that's land or property or stock market investments, they tend to increase in value a lot over time. And even Winston Churchill very famously pointed out a long, long time ago that landowners just have to put their feet up and sit back and do nothing And the value of their land holdings increases and increases all the time so they're getting this enormous free lunch and we saw examples of other free lunches with say quantitative easing where the government created lots of money to pump into the system to stabilize the banks after the financial crisis the wealth of the richest thousand people doubled in approximately five years whilst everybody else was struggling with austerity And we've seen something fairly similar with the tech companies getting much, much richer during the coronavirus. And so the wealth of people who control these tech companies is now up into the hundreds of billions. So they are getting phenomenally wealthier without having to to do anything. So if we look at, say, entrepreneurs, many people think that most people who are getting rich today are setting up their own businesses and they must be brilliant and they must be talented and they must be clever and so on. But in fact, in the latest research that I read, only approximately 4% of very rich people are, in fact, entrepreneurs. And even they probably don't deserve anything like all the wealth they have, because uh, wealth and ideas are based on what you might call a pyramid of knowledge, So going right back to the uh, ancient times where people invented maths and then over the last few hundred years people have developed computers and then the US government has invested massively in technology and so on, what you realise is that any entrepreneur who comes along just adds that tiny little stone at the top of this vast pyramid of knowledge. So let's say you take a company like Google, they're incredibly wealthy, Their wealth started from having the best search engine. But if they had never existed, lots of other people were writing very similar search engines at exactly the same time. If Google hadn't become the dominant one, somebody else probably would. There's no reason why they should become immensely wealthy just because their search engine has become the one that's successful. Similarly, there's some very famous case studies about Bill Gates where, You can see that he had lots and lots of advantages. He went to a computer club at his school, which was a very wealthy school, before anybody else had them. And he started writing an operating system at the same time as lots of other people wrote operating systems. The consensus is that his was certainly not the best, but his mum had connections in IBM and it was his software that got licensed by IBM and became the global standard and he became Uh, one of the world's richest uh, people. So a great amount of luck and good fortune and connections in terms of his success. And if he hadn't existed, if he hadn't written his operating system, somebody else would have written a very similar operating system and they would have been used on desktop computers all over the world. So we have to recognise with a lot of entrepreneurs, their contribution to human society is actually incredibly small. We have to question why it is that they receive these vast rewards just for being the right person in the right place at the right time. So the vast majority of people who are considered extremely wealthy today actually earn their money either as financial professionals or as professionals in other industries, many of them industries that are either completely dominant in their sector or that receive a great deal of assistance from government. And we talked about this last year so the companies become very successful and very wealthy because of assistance from government this then gets passed on to executives and to shareholders who receive these free lunches and if you look at executive pay it's basically become almost unlimited it can be any number of, uh, of millions and there was a study showing that the average top american executive was only 400 times a typical worker a few decades ago, that was only about 20 times as much. Well, executives haven't suddenly got much better. So they're able to earn or to receive. I'll stop using the word earn because that's what I'm sort of criticizing. They receive these immense pay packets simply because they sit on each other's remuneration committees. And they understand that if one person can be given a huge package, then that person sitting on your committee will give you a huge package pay increase and so on and so the, uh, their pay just escalates and escalates all the time and there's nothing that can actually limit uh, their, their pay. Um, so those are the main mechanisms by which individuals receive vast amounts of wealth that they haven't really uh, earned. Okay now if that didn't harm the rest of us you could say well okay so what's the big deal? Um, But if you actually start to analyze what people with great wealth do, you start to realize it does have immense negative consequences for the rest of us. And so there's three areas I'm going to talk about today. In fact, there are lots and lots of other places where great inequality and great wealth does have um, uh, negative consequences for everyone else. But these are the three most obvious ones. So they are housing and then the influence of politics and the influence on the media. So, if we focus on housing, most people will be aware that, say, in London or the southeast of England, house prices have shot up astronomically. There's a lot of reasons for this, but one of the main reasons is that uh, many of the new build properties are being sold to overseas investors, multimillionaires and billionaires from Russia, from China, and from the rest of the world. And so their value is determined by how much rich people will spend on them, not on how much local people will spend on them. So for a normal person or an ordinary person, uh, the, the amount of uh, house price costs in London is now closer to 10 times uh, your earnings, which is a huge amount, and even more in, uh, in some places, whereas historically it was much less than that. So a great many people are now spending half of their income on I don't know, a very expensive mortgage, Or on very expensive uh, rents. So when house prices go up, uh, anyone who's already got a house, they get a bit of a free lunch, the value of the house goes up. But anyone who doesn't already own a property, they find it harder to get on the property ladder or they pay more in, in rents. So in fact, rising house prices is a direct transfer of wealth from the poorer half of the population to the richer half of the population. And what we are seeing is a sort of form of social cleansing where people are being moved out of their existing properties. So new properties for very wealthy people can be built to replace them. So there's less and less uh, housing for ordinary uh, people. So this has consequences. So people either end up sharing a very small room, which some people do, or people move further and further out to be able to afford the properties. So then if they're working in London, say they have to commute further, that costs more, it takes more energy, your tickets are more expensive, it takes more time, you have more congestion, more stress, less time with your families, and if you've spent more on your tickets or on your petrol, less money to spend on other things, so a lower standard of living. So in fact, it actually has lots and lots of knock-on consequences for the rest of the economy. So what we see in some Parts of London is a sort of desert of wealth. So pockets of empty homes where nobody lives. The properties are just uh, left as investments. And in fact, there've been some very good case studies recently on uh, Silicon Valley in America, which has seen this problem where all the tech entrepreneurs who have millions to spend, they bid up the price of the homes. They buy multiple properties in a street, and ordinary people are you know the the nurses the the, the police, everybody else, the teachers, they have to commute further and further, so they've got a two-hour commute each way, and in fact, if people are trying to cram into a a small property um, anywhere near the centre, they're sharing rooms, what they're finding now is lots of children at the local schools are actually um, homeless, so they're living in shelters and so on, so we're seeing lots and lots of um, consequences. So that's just in terms of the price of the homes, but actually what happens is if property If land can be used to build expensive homes, it's not likely to be used for other purposes. So councils have uh, an incentive to sell the city centre hospital, and that gets relocated out of the city centre, which is less convenient for everybody. The the land is then sold to property developers and so on. Business rents tend to go up, so you get small local businesses being priced out, and all the prices get passed on to customers so in fact what you realize is customers in expensive locations are getting gouged twice not only is starbucks trying to overcharge you for the coffee but actually the people who own the land that starbucks is renting are also trying to overcharge and make a quick buck so um, people are spending more and more money just on uh, on the basics um, so uh, last week when we were having our conversation chris asked a question about trickle down. So you can actually look to see if there's any evidence of, uh, of trickle-down. That is, if you tax rich people less, they'll invest. This is the theory. They'll invest in it. And it's win-win for everybody. But in fact, there is no evidence that, it, that it's a win for anybody else. So what we're seeing is inequality is now the highest it's been uh, for many, many years. And it's actually getting worse and worse. And there's no sign of it decreasing Every, all the policy decisions that have been taken seem to be making it uh, worse. And so you see more people queuing at food banks uh, and, and so on. So, so that's the, the house price side of things. Then if we talk about how the rich distort politics, then I said last week that I think the most important phrase in human history is power corrupts. Now, extreme wealth is a form of power. It's a form of economic power enables you to buy political power. And so wealthy individuals will lobby for policies that work for them. They want to cut taxes for the rich. They want fewer regulations for businesses. They want to privatise the hospitals and the schools. And they don't care if the environment is destroyed. They want regulations that will allow them to destroy the, the environment. Well, many of these policies actually harm society. So wealthy people don't care about unemployment, they don't care if people are queuing at food banks, they don't care about homelessness. So what they do is they're ending up funding politicians who share their views. And what we're seeing is that politicians seem to be spending less and less time focusing on real problems. So we talked last week about how we're developing a sort of plutocracy where government by the 1% for the 1%. And that's always going to be the case when you have these immensely wealthy people who are allowed to influence politics to the extent they are. Now, this has multiple consequences. So many people will have noticed that people around them become more and more disillusioned with the political system because it's just not offering anything for them. So people drop out. Now, as far as rich people are concerned, they don't care if everybody else drops out of politics. They're quite happy for the political system just to serve their interests. And that's what's tending to happen. So there are these trends developing where the situation is already bad, but it's steadily looking as if it's likely to get worse because all of the forces are working for the benefit of the the 1%. And the final point that I want to mention is that they distort the news. So people will be aware that billionaires own many newspapers And uh, depending on which country you're in, they also own many TV stations and news outlets and so on. And the way the news is presented serves the interests of wealthy and powerful people. So the the presentation of wealth and power in the hands of a few people is presented as sort of natural or inevitable or there's nothing we can do about it. We just have to live with it. Uh, and we define success by how wealthy we are, and so rich people want you to be envious of their wealth. They want you to be thinking about you wanting to be as wealthy as them, and so on. So the idea of defining success in any terms other than how rich we are uh, is is never discussed, and so real problems are not discussed seriously, and the the general presentation that. Uh, wealth or success has been earned is, is the general way the media will present these things. So those are the key points. Now before I uh, come on to we do some question and uh, answers. Um, what we're probably going to find that each week there will be some sort of questions about what to do, and there's there's a number of different levels in which we can think about what to do. So uh, my area of expertise is about trying to understand the world. It's about trying to see through the uh, information that the mainstream news, uh, newspapers and TV shows present to you and be able to see what it is they're distorting. And what you realise is that every time you read a mainstream newspaper or you watch a current affairs programme on television. You're actually um, uh, just reinforcing everything that that rich and powerful people have wanted you to think about all of your life. That ultimately, the only way to completely change the way you think about these issues is to try and avoid getting information from the mainstream press. You probably can't avoid it altogether, and occasionally it's useful to understand what they're talking about. But if you want to understand a topic, you have to start looking for information from other sources that are much more critical and much more honest. Uh, So you need to go searching on the internet uh, and things like that. And then if we're talking about the specific problems that we've talked about today, uh, there have been discussions, more so in America than Britain, where they use the expression a plutocracy prevention program. It's about what can we do about this immense wealth, about people having too much wealth in the first place, but then also about the the downsides in terms of uh, how that affects the rest of us in negative ways. And they talk about things like wealth taxes, land taxes, financial transactions taxes. But what you realise is that nobody who is a serious policymaker or has any real influence is really talking about these seriously. They're just mentioned in passing occasionally but also the discussions that you can find on the internet show the limits of existing policy ideas because they will talk about saying, hey, if somebody's got too much wealth, let's introduce a wealth tax of 1%. Well, if somebody's wealth has just increased $20 billion, which is the case for some of the richest Americans, taxing them 1% on their wealth isn't going to make any difference. Their wealth will still skyrocket but a tiny bit slower. So we actually have to recognize that we need all options on the table. People need to be much more kind of receptive to thinking outside the box and saying, actually, if we are ever to solve these problems, we are really gonna have to try to eliminate great wealth. And that will require some fairly serious, hard-hitting policies, perhaps very different from anything that the mainstream media is talking about uh, at the moment. Uh, so if if I'm talking about housing, uh, and just just to get people's minds working, I often say to people, "Have you ever considered the possibility that we have a law that says you cannot own a second property? That means British people owning a second property abroad, or people overseas owning a second property in the UK." Now, the vast majority of people I talk to have never considered that. They consider that too extreme, but in fact. existing policy where billionaires from Russia and China and anywhere else can buy as many properties as they want anywhere in the world, that's an extreme policy and that's what's having negative consequences for us. And there are bigger picture implications. If rich rich people are just able to buy more and more properties, uh, then you're devoting a huge amount of resources, energy and so on, to building properties that are never used. And we have to think seriously about what we're going to do about issues like global warming and so on. So the whole nature of the debate uh, needs to to completely change to be much more critical and to be much more questioning. And so my my final kind of recommendation before we get onto the Q&A is to say the one thing people need to take away from this is to question everything. And that applies to everything I say, too, of course. You know, don't just take my word for it. Try and understand these things and research it and think about it yourselves, but never take anything for granted. Don't just question literally what people are saying. Think about what are the unstated assumptions that underpin what people are saying, because what you realize is there are lots of assumptions that never go challenged, but we need to challenge them. Um, okay, so I think I've probably spoken for long enough. No, Dave. no, that's,
0: uh, yeah, I know. Thanks. Thanks very much indeed, Rob. That's uh, really uh, fascinating. I mean, uh, Obviously, you hear from the media whenever there's any talk about uh, bringing them into line about the importance of a free press. I mean, we even have this over over Leveson. I mean, what, what's your thoughts in relation to that?
1: Um, so uh, I think a free press is incredibly important. And the problem at the moment is that probably most people who are within the mainstream press believe they operate in a in a fairly main uh, in a fairly free press, but the the freedom is has to be something that's on a, a slightly deeper level. So it's about what academics would call ideology. It's about what people believe, and you have to be free to think all sorts of different ideas. You have to be free to think the unthinkable, and at the moment. What purports to be a free press uh, thinks in very, very narrow terms, and we're going to talk about the media and propaganda more specifically in in later uh, sessions, but I I think um, we're, we're close to having a free press, but what you notice in the last couple of years is that if you say the wrong thing about the wrong subject, and most notably, as you're well aware, Chris, this will include Israel, but it will also include include, um, U.S. military policy Uh, if you look at what's happened to Julian Assange. It also includes things like um, Syria, that if you say the wrong things, suddenly the mainstream media and various other organizations too just pile on Saying that you're an enemy of the state and and all sorts of things, and we'll we'll talk about that in a lot more detail. And that the media are not as free as they would like to believe, and as I would like them to be. And there needs to be a complete kind of change of mindset in terms of the range of ideas that the media are prepared to consider. And we see alternative news outlets, and Resistance TV is a great example where people who have completely different ideas get interviewed. And the range of ideas that are expressed within the alternative media is much, um, much broader. Uh, and I hope over time that will continue. And if we're lucky, some of this might start to um, filter into the mainstream. But as things stand at the moment, I actually see the mainstream press slightly heading in the opposite direction. Yeah. That it's been a steady trend, which um, probably culminated in um, the intelligence services destroying the computers of the Guardian, where the mainstream media have become much, much less critical on many important issues, particularly national security issues. And so mm. I don't see any signs in the immediate future of the mainstream press doing what they should really be doing, which is to hold the most powerful uh, people to account.
0: Well, aren't they the uh, advocates for the most powerful billionaire class? Yes. So, so are, they ever, are they ever going to do what you suggest?
1: Well, so I don't think they ever will. And it's always very interesting having conversations with individual mainstream journalists because they will, they will uh, sort of shout till they're blue in the face that they're completely independent and nobody tells them what to say. And, of course, noam Chomsky very famously pointed out to Andrew Marr that uh, if Andrew Marr believed anything other than what he believes, then he wouldn't be in the job he's, he's in now. And so the uh, the mainstream press have quite a powerful recruitment system, quite a powerful filtering system to uh, to limit the range of ideas that is considered... Um, acceptable. So uh, it's it's hard to see why the mainstream press would change dramatically in the uh, foreseeable future. Uh, So we'll we'll just have to see. It may be that we just need a lot more alternative media. uh, And eventually, if the alternative media is talking about things more and more critically, I think it becomes harder and harder for the mainstream media to completely ignore it.
0: No, I think that's 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 probably true, and ho- hopefully the case in any event. But uh, just returning though to the to the theme of um, because obviously, as you say, we're going to be speaking a bit more about the media uh, uh, later. There's, there's plenty, I think, we could say. Well, just one example for exa- uh, is in terms of the difference between the mainstream and the uh, the uh, sort of progressive alternative press. Uh, just a small anecdotal issue relating to how my case against the Labour Party was reported when I took the Labour Party to the High Court when they unlawfully suspended me. And the, the High Court ruled that I had been unlawfully suspended and therefore I defeated the Labour Party on that point. But the way the all the mainstream media reported that was that I'd lost that case. And it was only the alternative media, like uh, the Canary Squawk Box and uh, uh, Electronic Intifada, etc., who... who had a, a completely alternative uh, uh, viewpoint, uh, which is really interesting. It's uh, it literally 180 degrees opposite to to what the mainstream, all of the mainstream media had been saying. And I think there's a degree of groupthink, isn't there, in the in the media? But as I say, I think that's perhaps something we'll come on to uh, when we when we discuss that in a later edition. But just in terms of the genesis of this of this situation that we have at the moment with the huge growth in billionaires. Where do you put the genesis of that? Is it the Margaret Thatcher's Big Bang of the financial services, you know, the deregulation of the financial services? Or is it later with Gordon Brown, Ed Balls and company? Or is it a combination? Was that just a continuation of the, the Thatcher Revolution that started in nineteen
1: eighty-six? So so my own take on it is that since Margaret Thatcher in Britain and Ronald Reagan in America, which is at approximately the same time, there's been a very, very deliberate set of policies um, for political parties to work in the interests of um, the of big companies but also very wealthy people. And um, I think if you sort of look at inequality data, there's, there's a, you've got a nice simple kind of graph for inequality. So um, in the year 1900, you had a small number of people with immense wealth, and everybody else was very, very poor. And that situation improved and improved and improved up to approximately 1970. And the situation is the same in America and, uh, and in Britain. And inequality was at its lowest approximately around about 1970. And then under first Thatcher, and then Blair, and then more recently under the Conservatives, you can see that... Under Thatcher, inequality rockets again. So great wealth starts to be concentrated back into the hands of a small number of people. Under Tony Blair, nothing that Thatcher had done particularly in that sense, in the sense of making rich people rich, was reversed. But inequality stayed level-ish. So he was still completely in bed with the rich and big business. Uh, And they were doing all these public-private partnerships and all sorts of other things that ended up being free lunches for businesses. They were also doing some things that helped ordinary people and poor people somewhat, but inequality stayed level. And then once the Conservatives got back into power, inequality rocketed uh, again. And it it now is right back to the level that we saw about a century ago. So I think you can lay the blame squarely at, at sort of both parties that quite self-evidently, the Tories, whatever they might have been historically, but quite clearly now, they are simply the party of the rich and powerful and of big business. But unfortunately, starting with Tony Blair, they also became a party of big business and a party of the rich and the powerful. And um, I think it's a real shame, the way politics has gone in Britain, that. To my way of thinking, it's slightly mirrored politics in America. So I often think it's easier to analyze a system if you're not too close to it. So if we look at the American system, you can see that on the policies that really matter, so that's foreign policy, that's wars and so on, overthrowing governments overseas, but also about whether or not a government is in bed with the financiers and big companies, there's almost nothing between the two main parties in America. Well, now Britain is remarkably similar. On foreign policy, um, it's, it's indistinguishable. You know, it's uh, very gung-ho, very militaristic. But also in terms of being in bed with big business, I see actually nothing to distinguish the, the two main parties. No. And When you gung- say the
0: two main parties, though, Rod, I mean, I think we should make a distinction between the grassroots membership and the parliamentary Labour Party and perhaps the, the bureaucrats in the... Uh, head office and so on because i think there is a difference so certainly that was a, a much more marked difference when jeremy corbyn became the leader and we all know what happened there um but there's a question on screen there from natalie uh, strecker who's saying do you think uh, any of this any of what we'll be talking about in terms of the challenges uh to you know create a better society alternative society as i think you and i would like to see any of that uh be achieved through our current political system uh or without or do we need a revolution, basically? You know, it's essentially, I think, Natalie's question. What do you think to that? I mean, do we need a revolution?
1: Well, Sam, come- I, I think that's the question that we all need to be asking ourselves about what is the best way forward from this point. And, and I think it's probably going to require different groups of people all working in probably in slightly uh, in similar directions, but not necessarily with the same kind of exact uh, sort of goals in mind. So, um, the the control of the Labour Party by um, right wing politicians and by bureaucrats who share their views, making it a policy of the the sort of the rich and the powerful, uh, seems very strong at the moment. And they're going to get quite extreme measures to block grassroots activists or local parties from trying to bring about any change. You know, they're shutting down discussion in uh, one constituency after another. Uh, But to me, whilst this is uh, unfortunately a very dangerous time in the the sense of the power that these people wield, I think the fact that they are doing these things to me is, is a slight sign of desperation in that I think it's becoming more and more clear to more and more people that the system is just not working, that it is completely broken and um so it's, it's only when we have sort of mass awareness of these things that we're likely to bring about great change but can um, that
0: change so be brought i mean the point that i think the question that natalie is asking is can that change then be brought about through the existing political structures as i think many of us hoped would happen under jeremy corbyn and we all saw what happened there or or does something else need to happen some form of revolution some form of in know, mass movement to, to force change yes. or not? Or do you think, are you still hopeful that we can get some change through the normal challenge, challenge, channels?
1: I think hopeful might be the wrong word, but I don't think it's impossible that change could be achieved through the normal channels. But I, I think quite a lot of people who dropped out of the Labour Party when they became disillusioned with it um, in the last couple of years, I think perhaps... Uh, there was always an opportunity. If you had this mass grassroots base connected to the Labour Party, I think there was a chance to bring about change by forcing change through the Labour Party. But it would have required people to be much more aggressive about the sorts of changes they were trying to bring about. I think having lost so many members, that becomes more difficult, but not impossible. Um, So I, I can't give you a kind of yes or no answer to the question because uh i don't know enough about the internal workings of the labor party to know to have any real idea of whether it can be salvaged or not and somebody made an interesting point a few weeks ago that in many of the countries where new left wing parties have had some success recently they are new parties and so i think it's perfectly plausible that a new party can be formed from a new grassroots base and so on. Um, uh, But I often think in those countries where that's happened, things had already got so bad that people recognised there was no alternative. I think whilst people still believe there might be an alternative to the main Labour Party, then it becomes difficult to do the alternative. And one of the things that slightly disappointed me was talking to local uh, members, when Keir Starmer first kind of took the leadership over, too many people were saying, well, I, I think he could be completely different. You know, I think we have to give him a chance. So that most people just did not recognize that he is the heart of the British establishment. You know, he's not there to rescue the Labour Party. He is there to make sure that it's either a completely right wing party or he's there to make sure it's useless uh, in opposition. And, and either of those would be sort of equally, equally bad. So I think people do need to slightly wake up to, you know, ordinary people need to become more savvy about being critical about what's really going on. And I, I think there is still this element missing in order to pursue either route. You know, people are not yet sufficiently critical of the existing Labour Party. Not enough people are sufficiently critical of the existing Labour Party and recognise the scale of change required. And I think an awakening needs needs to happen. And it's always hard to know how bad life in any society has to get before people will wake up. But it it may well be that uh, various philosophers have pointed out over the years how systems appear to be incredibly stable right up to the moment they collapse. And so the Berlin Wall is the most famous example of that. And uh, so it may well be that something slightly out of left field, something unpredictable, let's say like the coronavirus, which caused immense hardship for a great many people, will be something that might trigger people to be kind of more questioning and so on. Now, I'm not sure that the coronavirus is it, because um, uh, I I think we've we've probably ridden through the worst of it. And to me, there wasn't enough sort of awakening. So you never know what might bring about change. So I I think on on that front, we just hope that more and more people um, will start to, to wake up. But the first part of that is always to build these kind of networks that expand outwards. Where people change the conversation. You know, everyone listening here tonight can start having different conversations with everyone they know, with their friends, with their families, with their colleagues and acquaintances, which doesn't just buy into the mainstream kind of media nonsense that takes the existing system as reasonable, but actually start to be much, much more critical. So we have to find ways to get everybody to be more questioning and more critical Mm -hmm. and more thinking about what sort of society we ultimately um, want to live in. So do you think that's
0: the catalyst then? We all need to be that catalyst, is that what you're saying? Or or do you think that an event needs to happen that that then sparks?
1: So so I don't know. I think it's the nature of these things. I would love to be able to give really simple answers and say, well, I'm sure what will definitely happen is this. But uh, history is slightly less predictable than that, unfortunately. Mm. Um, So I can't say for sure whether there will be a specific event or whether there will just be a gradual uh, awakening across you know, tens of millions of people uh, or not. Uh, we just have to wait and see. But I, I think oddly enough that we're not a kind of alone in this situation as a nation. It's actually something similar is happening in lots and lots of other countries. So the mainstream news often focuses on America and we see all sorts of things going, up, going on in America where ordinary people are re- recognizing you know, what a, an unfair society they live in. And if you look at, say, healthcare, uh, in, in many ways, their system is already much more unfair uh, than mm. our system. And the other day I was looking at a documentary, which is talking about very similar points, to the ones I was making about the housing situation, where uh, more and more cities in London are being, ordinary people are being priced out. Even people with uh, with what would be considered decent engineering jobs and so on, just cannot afford to buy uh, the properties that are being built in in their cities. Well, what
0: should we be demanding then, Rod? In that regard, I mean,
1: uh,
0: um, so should we be banning uh, foreign billionaires from purchasing property in the, in this country? Because I mean, be like, that clearly is an issue. But then we've got our own homegrown billionaires who are who are making a killing out of the property market. What, what what's the solution there? Do you think to that that we should be That's demanding?
1: I think, I think the housing thing is sort of multi layered. So, but firstly, people have to understand that there are downsides to the presence of very rich people. And that will start a debate going about what policies we change. Then I would start saying, over time, we need to find ways to massively decrease not only the wealth, but also the power of very rich people. We need to accept that they didn't really earn that wealth in the first place. And even if people's ideas on how to decrease their wealth are... Uh, limited or kind of narrowed by uh, their range of of thinking, people might start to say, "Ah, but quite obviously, if they're making donations to politicians, if they're funding politicians, if they're lobbying politicians, we can see that the political system will only represent them. It won't represent the masses. And so people might be able to say, let's change the system of party funding. Let's change the system of lobbying. So I always think there's a sort of Uh, the very inconsistencies in government policies. So a few years ago, the government talked a lot about saying to NGOs and campaign organisations, if you receive government funding, you can't get engaged in politics. You know, if you're Greenpeace, you do what Greenpeace does, but you don't do politics. If you're Friends of the Earth, you do what Friends of the Earth does, but you don't do politics. And uh, and that was a condition of receiving uh, money from the government. But at the same time, what I talked about last week was the government giving masses and masses of money to big companies. And of course, big companies are having conversations, quiet, private conversations with governments all the time. And so the government has this complete double standard, this hypocrisy, where the representatives of ordinary people and the representatives of civil society are not allowed to do certain things. Whereas big companies uh, get away with doing whatever they want to do. And and the government is actively helping them to do that. So if if more people become aware of all the different aspects of the system that it's completely rigged in favor of big companies and the rich and the powerful and so on, then people can start saying, well, we do actively need to have um, a campaign organization that's about saying no more corporate lobbying. And and I I personally would love to see some, some mainstream politician come along and say listen we shouldn't have the richest one percent involved in politics at all and now you might say well actually that's not democracy you can't exclude a a group of people but bizarrely uh the one percent get all the attention and many other groups of people are actually excluded even if it's not written down in the rules yeah yeah and uh the one percent can actually look after themselves you know it doesn't matter if you tax them at a very high rate. And so they'll still be phenomenally wealthy. They'll still be successful. They'll still be doing their thing. They don't need a political system to serve them. But unfortunately, it does. So we, I think if people started talking about the various aspects of a, of a system, let's say you've got the political system and you've got the policing system, and if politics and the police were both about protecting the 99% from the 1%, then that's an entirely different conversation than Mm. what we have now, which is mostly about protecting the 1% from the 99%, obviously in terms of politics, but to some extent, even in terms of uh, policing and so on, that the crimes of the powerful, which again is a topic we might talk about in some detail in a future week, uh, the police don't actually pursue them, and where the police might occasionally try to pursue them. So if British Aerospace pays $7 billion to the Saudis, as a bribe to to buy uh, British weapons, the the Serious Fraud Office tried to investigate, and the government actually steps in mm-hmm. and blocks a police investigation into. Well, we
0: shouldn't we shouldn't be doing business with the Saudis in any event. I mean, they they are they're a rogue state, and uh, we should be banning any sales of, of of military hardware to them, as we should be doing with with Israel as well. But uh, uh, never mind the kind of the corruption that that goes along with that. But that's a whole question about the military industrial complex and the influence that that they obviously have. But um, I noticed there's a question there on the screen from uh, Amelia uh, uh, Washbourne saying uh, about the the utilities fat cats. How about the fat cats from the utilities? Profit made, our prices go up, services don't uh, change. And uh, I mean, I did some work when I was still an MP and got the House Commons Library just to look at the profits and uh, corporation tax and dividends that have been paid by the Utilities and it was uh, quite shocking, actually. The very minimal amounts paid in corporation tax, uh, huge profits, but but absolutely colossal dividends. And if those institutions were in the public sector, of course, then there would be no need for dividends, and that money could be used to improve the system. I mean, water was the very worst in terms of the of the huge dividends that were being paid out, and and we know that there are massive leaks in water bills extremely expensive i mean i think you could have the best of all worlds you could from from those figures that the house commons library did anyway you it seems you could you could actually reduce water bills and improve services at the same time but i don't know what's your thoughts about the utilities and, and what's happened there and the way they've so, made so lots of so, people very rich
1: so i didn't mean to talk over you so the the utilities are a great example firstly of the, what i was talking about uh, sort of last week where the system is set up so if you have big powerful private companies that dominate a the sector, they can extract vast amounts of wealth out of it. And then the payments to shareholders um, from the utilities is the kind of the, the step that we were talking about today, where individuals who own a lot of these shares and, and many uh of the shares of the biggest companies are owned by the 1%, then they receive all of these uh these dividends and the increases in the value of the share. So that's the asset price inflation that I was talking about. And they are getting these immense free lunches. And my own view uh, is similar to, there's an American economist, if people have never heard of him, he's very well worth reading. I consider him to be the best economist in the world. His name is Michael Hudson. And his opinion is that anything that you might consider um, like a state utility or a natural monopoly. So that would be water, gas, electricity, but it would also include the banking sector and it might even include the development of medicines. So the pharmaceutical sector, um, all of them should be owned and controlled by the state to provide what they provide at the lowest possible cost to everybody. And he makes an interesting, uh, he has an interesting discussion about the history of kind of economic ideas. And he says that 130 years ago or or earlier, up until about 130 years ago, every economist, whether it was Karl Marx or Adam Smith, the whole spectrum, they all recognised that you must not put these giant uh, businesses into private hands because uh, private owners will just find ways to abuse their power to extract more and more wealth from each of those uh, utilities. You have to keep them all in public hands to provide whatever they're they're providing. So it's the water, it's the electricity, it's the, the financial services, if it's the banking sector, at the lowest possible cost. So there's no... Um, excess profits to be made, there's no giant payouts to shareholders, and the whole economy then runs fantastically well, and the same would apply to the the health service. So uh, we have uh, a national health service that we can rightly be proud of, that the government at the moment is actively demolishing in order to to gradually privatise it a bit at a time. And that should also be a utility that is available very, very cheaply to everybody. Once you privatise it, the private owners will find ever more complex ways to extract more and more wealth from those systems, and the cost to everybody else goes up. As we're
0: seeing, Rod, with the uh, the care service in this country, because that I and mean, we had a mixed economy, didn't we? And we probably still have to some extent, but it's 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 diminished in terms of the public sector that provides social care for people and whether it be domiciliary care in people's homes or whether it be people living in nursing homes, residential care homes, predominantly in the private sector now, people paying huge sums of money, you know, several thousand pounds a week and people who perhaps bought their own council house or maybe struggled to bought their own house are finding, you know, working class people that at the other end of their life, that, that that asset is having to be used to to pay for their care and there's a question there just on your point about uh the nhs you were talking there from from diana uh is i can't read that is it uh is a is it as i pronounce that a uh, pro- sorry diana if i've got the if you pronounced your name incorrectly but Diana's is asking uh, could the imminent collapse and full privatization of the national health service be a catalyst for a big change, or at least contribute to it, do you think? And we were talking about what, what the catalyst might be. Do you, do you think that's a possibility? Because so, the NHS is, very, is, 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 a, is a loved institution, isn't it, in, in this country?
1: Yes. So I, I do think that um, people are sort of switching on to the fact that, although the government have been doing it kind of stealthily uh, mm. over many years, and in little bits and pieces here, that suddenly there's a rapid change going on with uh, gp surgeries and so on that more people are starting to, to become aware that uh, as you say this prized institution is going to be handed over to to private uh, companies and it's pretty much an attempt at what you might call the americanization of the healthcare system and every analysis by anybody who's serious at studying the healthcare system says you absolutely do not want to Americanize your healthcare system. And there was a very famous um, uh, quote many years ago, uh, there was a secret recording of a, a comment by an advisor to President Nixon in America, and they were talking about whether to create a national health service for America. And the advisor said, The great thing about a private healthcare system is that all the incentives point in the wrong direction. Now, that just means that everybody who would be involved in a private healthcare system has opportunities to to take more money. So, the doctors can take more money, the insurance companies can take more money, the hospitals can take more money, the drug companies can take more money, and the price just goes through the roof to ordinary users. And the whole system can never ever work uh, properly, like a properly funded NHS can. So if we're lucky, then something like the NHS could be the the sort of trigger that wakes people up and gets people out on the streets uh, campaigning. But, yeah, uh, this
0: is where I think the uh, you know the Labour Party in Parliament has been sadly lacking, really, because there's been no real proper leadership there. I mean, I think this is, should have been front and centre and should have really been highlighting And There's been some effort to do that, but nowhere near enough. And they should. I mean, this is one of the things with Jeremy, of course, uh, which we were hoping, you know, in terms of creating a mass movement, a social movement, that they could have taken that struggle from parliament onto the streets and back again. And I think that would have been, uh, you know, uh, sort of the, the square in that circle would have, been, would have, been, a, would have sort of been a very elegant way, I think, of, of trying to raise some of these issues. But just on the point about insurance, though, uh, Rod, what's your thoughts about insurance in general? We, we take it, I mean, we think it's, well, I think most of us probably in this country would see an American-style insurance system for, you know, healthcare as anathema. But we just take for granted that we have insurance for our cars. It's private sector that, that do that and they make huge profits from it. Private sector that we insure our homes with and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, it's often something that I've often thought about is why, you know, why are, we, why are we farming this out to the private sector? Why doesn't the state just come in and we say we pay, a, you know, because, for example, young people who are starting out uh, you know, buying their first car, they've just passed the test and they, and they get a car. They're being charged, you know, three or four thousand pounds or more for uh, for their insurance. Huge sums of money, which is very difficult for a young person, particularly these days, many of them on very low incomes. Um, Why is it, do you think, uh, in the hands of the private sector? Should it be? And is that something that the state should be providing as well?
1: Well, I think it's really great that you've asked that question, because I've actually never heard anyone ask that question before. But it's actually a really important question. And so it's a, it's a great thing to kind of get the audience to say, okay, yeah, I could have thought of that question. I need to, to question what what underpins what's going on, not take anything for granted. And um, I haven't researched the car insurance or the home insurance sector in enough detail to see if there are any major downsides to the state being the insurer for homes and cars. I'm sure. It would work just fine, and I'm sure it would end up being much cheaper for everybody. With any any system, you realise that there might be sort of little loopholes that you'd have to look at very closely, you know, some sort of insurance fraud here and there. But that's the same with any system. And I actually think you're right that insurance is the sort of thing that if you can remove the profit layer... Um, then you could make the cost much cheaper than it is. And in fact, one of the things that I was researching in writing many of the things that I I write about was uh, Warren Buffett's investment strategies. So some people will be aware that Warren Buffett is one of the most famous, most successful investors in the world. He seems to be very good at picking certain types of investments that that seem to work very well in in the long term. But I also discovered that he uses the wealth in the the sort of pool of investments as an insurance fund. And so it there taking in insurance premiums as extra income, and the amount you will pay out, let's say with car insurance or household insurance, will be considerably less than the amount you'll take in. So he's making that extra layer of profit. So it's quite a profitable industry. Um, And I, I think it would be perfectly fine to remove the profit layer from the insurance system and not have it run as a private um, system. And just one final point, if I've got time, uh, some people who've ever studied history will be aware that 100 years ago, people used to have private insurance with fire companies, companies to put out your fire. And the reason everywhere in the world eventually ended up with a state-run uh, fire service is because everybody realized how inefficient the system was. You had multiple fire companies If you didn't have insurance with the right company your fire wouldn't be put out And no. so that's where the term fire sale comes yes. from houses would burn down and You'd have to sell off your things to, to take to get any any income. So it didn't work. It was a disaster so we have examples historically of where private insurance doesn't actually work very well. And it may well be the case that we can improve the car and the home insurance system by having a nationally run. Well,
0: well, here's a challenge then, Rod. I mean, we are going to do this series with you and maybe that's one that you could perhaps have a think about and we could we could have a, a programme devoted to that because I think there would be a lot of interest in that. I mean, particularly on these points, just as I've mentioned, for example, car insurance for young people. And there are many other Examples of that and people being ripped off and so on. I mean, there's been something, hasn't there, about uh, some legislation which is going to stop insurance companies from penalising long long-standing customers. Uh, I mean, I was a victim of that, actually. I mean, I'd been with the same insurance company for about 20 odd years, never bothered to kind of look and check. Then I had my bicycle stolen out of the shed. Actually, the the people that stole my bicycles did us a favour because we then shopped around. And I was paying seven hundred pounds for my insurance, and we got the same insurance for a hundred pounds and two brand new bicycles. So we were actually served a, uh, you know, usefully uh, by the by the the people who who, who nicked our bikes on that occasion. But I mean, I also make the point that, you know, people wouldn't be stealing bicycles if we could just eradicate poverty. If people had enough money in their pockets and they wouldn't be looking around to to steal other people's belongings. But uh, anyway, that's uh, another issue. But that's one that you could maybe uh, look at in the future. But we are out of time. In fact, we've just gone about 30 seconds over time. Thanks again, Rod, for an absolutely uh, brilliant and fascinating uh, discussion this evening. Uh, I think it certainly whetted the appetite of our uh, audience. And. Uh, As I say, let's come back to this uh, issue about insurance as one of the series of programmes that we will be doing with you. As I think I've said to uh, viewers, we're going to be having Rod on a regular uh, basis now. Rod is our resident uh, academic who's uh, speaking on a range of different uh, topics. I hope you found it fascinating and interesting this evening, as I have. Thank you again, Rod, for joining us this evening. Really appreciate that. Please join us again next week at the same time, 7pm on uh, Wednesday. I look forward to seeing you then. Thank you for watching and good night. (laughs)